0: This is why habits feel so automatic is because in one sense, once something becomes a habit, your brain has kind of gone to sleep. You're no longer participating in decision-making around that activity, except at two kind of interesting points.
1: That's Charles Duhigg, and this is The Depression Detox Show. Welcome back to the Depression Detox Show, where we share ideas and stories to help you live a happier life. I am your host, Malik Josephs. Happy Friday. Thank you so much for joining me today as we close out this week's episodes with New York Times bestselling author Charles Duhigg on the show today and he is going to talk about the science of creating habits and at the end of the talk he's going to share a practical way to use the science of habit formation to help us lose weight and get in shape here's Charles Duhigg enjoy
0: so uh The book that I wrote, The Power of Habit, started about 10 years ago when I was a a reporter um, in Iraq. And I had had been sent over to Iraq because I thought it would be very interesting to be in a war zone. I had never been in a war zone before turns out it is very interesting. It's also terrifying and awful. And so I figured out pretty quickly that my number one goal in Iraq was to be in places where no one could shoot at me, which turns out to be harder than I thought it would be. But so I heard about this one army major about an hour south of Baghdad that was doing this experiment in a city named Kufa. Kufa was one of these towns where riots would break out all the time and people were being killed. And so the army major had been sent down to Kufa, and his assignment was stop the riots. So this guy shows up. He studies a whole bunch of videotapes of riots that were shot by drones. He goes to the town mayor and he says, a whole laundry list of requests. And his last request is, can you take all the food vendors out of the plazas in Kufa? And the mayor, who's dealing with suicide bombers and you know, all types of terrible stuff says, sure, sure, I can take all the food vendors out. That's the easiest thing you've asked me to do. So a couple of weeks later, this crowd starts growing in around the Grand Mosque of Kufa, which is this very contentious mosque. And the crowd gets bigger and bigger over time. And what the Army Major explained to me is that when riots happen, they take hours to develop. Like on the news, it looks like they just broke out, right? But those people have been in that plaza for hours and hours and hours until eventually something kind of sparks and the entire crowd goes wild. So the crowd grows and grows and grows and grows. Time goes by, gets bigger and bigger and bigger, gets to about 5.30, people are hungry, and they start looking for all the food vendors that they normally buy kebabs from. And they're not there. So that people at the outer ring of this crowd go home. Because they're hungry and they're just spectators. And then the people who are one ring in see these people leaving and think to themselves, where are they going? The party must be someplace else. Like, why am I hanging out if everyone else... So they leave. And then the people one ring in, they leave as well. Until eventually you get to these rabble-rousers, who are the people who start the riot in the first place. And they look around and realize there's nobody there. So they go home. And over the nine-month period that the major had been there, there hadn't been any riots. So when I talked to this guy, I was totally fascinated by this. I, also, I could talk to him in a very well-fortified building where no one could shoot at me. And so I had asked as many questions as I could. And I said, how did you know that this was going to happen, that removing the food vendors would do this? Because there had been riots for years in Kufa. And what he said was that the military is essentially this huge habit experiment, right? When you enroll—is anyone a veteran? I don't know if anyone— Okay, so a couple people. So you know this far better than I do. When you enroll in the military, basically their whole goal is to teach you these new habits, right? Like when people are shooting at you, instead of running away like sensible people do, stand there and shoot back. Or more importantly, how do you get along with people that you can't stand? Or how do you make decisions when you're exhausted or when you're under fire? Or how do you talk to your spouse when you're on another continent? Or even just spending habits. How do you save money? The military is this huge, huge laboratory for changing habits. And what this major told me is that once you start looking at the world through the lens of these habits, once you sort of understand how they work, all of a sudden everything looks different. And you understand that a riot can be stopped by taking away the food vendors. So I thought this was totally fascinating. So I came back to the US, I started researching uh, about studies that were going on uh, around the science of habit formation. And and let me just start by telling you what a habit is, at least for purposes of this, this talk, which is, A habit is a decision that you made at some point and then stopped making but continued acting on. So backing your car out of your driveway, the first couple of times you did it, it took this major dose of concentration, right? It's actually a very complicated thing because you have to do spatial calculations, look in mirrors, reversed images. But when you back your car out of your driveway now, you just do it. You don't even have to think about it, right? You can think about the meeting you have later that day or realize that you left your kids lunch on the counter. That's a habit. I actually have to start by telling you this story about a rat. About a decade ago, a woman named Ann Beal at MIT, who's a neurologist, and her colleagues perfected a system for putting hundreds of small little sensors inside the brains of rats so that they could measure relatively small neurological changes as the rats behave. They would do the surgery, the rats would wake up, it looks like they have a joystick coming out of their head. They don't even know... Or as far as we know, they never complain about it, right? They just sort of act like normal rats. So Anne Grable and her colleagues would do this to a number of rats. And then what they would do is they would drop them in the world's simplest maze. It's a T-shaped maze. Same thing would happen every single time. There would be a click. A partition would move. The rat would be free to run up and down the maze. And in one of the T's, there's a piece of chocolate. So the first couple of times that you drop any rat into this maze, the same thing will happen. Click, partition moves. The rat will start looking like the world's laziest rat. What it'll do is, like, you would imagine that it would smell the chocolate and kind of run towards it. That's not what the rat does. What it does is it kind of wanders up and then wanders back, and it'll scratch on the walls and sniff at the air, and eventually it'll find the chocolate and eat the chocolate. But it doesn't look like the rat is working for it very hard. But what Graeville was able to figure out by watching the sensors inside the rat's brains was that despite the fact that the rat looked lazy, it was actually thinking hard the entire time. Whenever the rat would scratch on the walls, the scratching centers would light up. Or the sniff in the air and the sniffing centers would light up. I'm oversimplifying because if anyone's a neurologist, you know that there is no such thing as like a scratching center. But the point being that this is a representation of what was going on in the rat's head. It was thinking hard the entire time, trying to figure out what's going on. So Grebiel and her colleagues drop the rat in again and again and again. And over time, the rat actually learns the maze, right? Click, partition moves, the rat zips to the chocolate. Gets faster and faster and faster every single time. Doesn't scratch, doesn't sniff. From a neurological perspective, what happens is that the rat develops a habit for running through the maze and getting to the chocolate. And inside the animal's brain, something kind of fascinating occurs. Its brain essentially stops working as hard. Now what we know since then is that what's actually happening here is that if anyone, again, is a neurologist. Is anyone a neurologist? Oh, okay, because okay, so no one can tell me that I'm getting this all wrong, <laughs> which is great. The, essentially what's happening is that cognition is moving from the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain where essentially decision-making occurs, the, the most evolutionary advanced part of the brain, into the basal ganglia, which is near the center of your skull and is one of the oldest parts of, a, of your brain, and almost every animal has a basal ganglia. As As cognition moves from the prefrontal cortex into the basal ganglia, your brain works less and less hard. This is why habits feel so automatic. Is because in one sense, once something becomes a habit, your brain has kind of gone to sleep. You're no longer participating in decision making around that activity. Except at two kind of interesting points. If you'll notice, what happens is that the brains, the, the brain activity of the rat would spike at the beginning of the habit, when it heard the click. And then it would spike again at the end when it found the chocolate, as if it was shaking itself awake to sort of get the reward and figure out what was going on. This is the neurological signature of a habit. About 40% of the actions you take every day, according to a study from Duke, are habits. And every single time you do, if we could put hundreds of sensors into your brain, which I would not recommend, this is exactly what we would see. You would see this pattern of a spike of activity at the beginning and a spike of activity at the end, and relatively low neurological activity in the middle as your basal ganglia in particular takes over and uses less power. In fact, this is such a predictable pattern that scientists call this the habit loop. Every single habit has three components. There's a cue, which in this case was that click, or for any behavior that you have is some type of visual or emotional or some other trigger that tells your brain, now it's time to hand things over to the basal ganglia, where the behavior will start to unfold automatically. And that behavior itself is the routine. But then at the end of every single habit, there's a reward. And this is how your brain learns or decides to encode this pattern for future use, to essentially remember it in some of the deeper parts of your brain. Discovering the the habit loop is kind of revolutionary because what's happened in the last 10 years as neurologists have begun to understand exactly how to identify and manipulate cues and rewards is that we've begun to understand why some behaviors become habits. Smoking's a great example, right? Does anyone smoke? Is anyone willing to admit that they smoke? (laughs) At this point, you can't. What's interesting is that we all think of smoking as as a physical addiction, and that's true, right? Nicotine is physically addicting but only for about 100 hours after your last cigarette. Once nicotine is out of your blood system, there is no physical addiction to it anymore. And yet we all know people who two weeks or two months or two years after they quit smoking, when they sit down with their morning paper, they have an urge for a cigarette. That's not a physical addiction in itself. It's the habit. The cue there is that, in fact, the morning paper, and the routine is that they used to light up. And the reward was that nicotine is actually makes you feel, gives you energy, right? Nicotine is actually kind of fun. That's why people smoke. And in fact, as therapies have begun recognizing the cues and rewards in people's lives around smoking, the smoking rate has plummeted, in the, in particularly in the last seven years, for a number of reasons, but part of it being a sort of this identification. In addition, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with smartphones, um, research in motion about seven years ago, was doing some research and figured out that if they could make their phones vibrate, that for some reason, people's use of them for the BlackBerry all of a sudden doubled. And the reason why is because a vibrating phone in your pocket provides an obvious cue. And in fact, they did neurological studies where they would try and figure out what was the reward that was being provided. And it's that once you're triggered with this curiosity of why did someone just email me, you have this unbearable craving to actually check and see what it is because intermittently, some of those emails that you receive will be kind of fun to read, right? Particularly more fun than maybe having conversation with your three-year-old at the dinner table. So when your phone vibrates in your pocket, even though you know, and I'm speaking as someone who has a three-year-old that I make conversation with about superheroes every single night, even though you know you should ignore that vibrating phone, the cue has triggered this craving, this routine of checking and trying to get that reward. And moreover, this insight has helped and create... um, A number of positive habits. Uh, There was a huge experiment that was done a couple of years ago about creating exercise habits. What they found was the most effective way to create exercise habits is to ask people to choose obvious cues. Always exercise at the same time each day or put on your running shoes before breakfast. And more importantly, to choose a reward at the end. In particular, eating a small piece of chocolate after you've worked out. And the reason why It seems counterintuitive, right? The whole point of working out is to lose weight, and yet the scientists are telling you to eat a small piece of chocolate. It's because initially your brain does not believe you that you enjoy exercise. (laughs) And so you have to trick it for the first couple of weeks. And what they found, this was a huge study in Germany, was that in about two or three weeks, people stopped eating the chocolate. They didn't need the chocolate. Their brain learned that it would eventually be delivered endocannabinoids and endorphins, things that make you, that are rewarding. But in the meantime, you have to sort of trick your neurology. Um, The point being just that this habit loop is kind of an interesting insight. And that the implications of it, once you can begin breaking down behaviors, are relatively significant.
1: Big thanks to Charles Duhigg for stopping by. If you'd like to connect with him, you can go to his website, charlesduhigg.com. His Instagram is also charlesduhigg. His latest and New York Times bestselling book is entitled The Power of Habit why we do what we do in life and business. And also, if you'd like to check out the entire talk, you can go to YouTube and type in the title of his book, which is is The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. All right, that is a wrap for me. As always, super, super appreciative to you for tuning in with me today. I hope you have a terrific rest of your day. I hope you have a fantastic weekend and I look forward to seeing you back here Monday. So until then, stay strong. Later.